Welcome back to another episode, our third episode of Soccer Mom Sunday podcast. I'm Jennifer Cease. JB Anderson's here with me. And before we talk to our guest, I thought we'd just like recap, like, how's your week going? What day is it? School's back in session. I can't keep track. (laughs) I have no idea. I, I wake up and I go to the car or not to the car based on whether my wife says, this is our day or this is not our day. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have I no usually, idea what day it is anymore. I really have no excuse for disorganization anymore. I, I would say all summer long that I didn't know what day it was. And I can't keep track because the kids aren't in school yet. The kids are all back in school. I have four. They're all back. And I still can't keep track of the day. So apparently it's not them. It's, it's a me issue. <laughs> well, you know, the thing I despise about this time of year, because I mean, I love my kids. I like when they're around. I'm also very, very happy when they go to school. But mm-hmm. my biggest pet peeve right now, morning traffic. Just trying to get out of neighborhoods because now everybody yes. is figuring out carpools and what's their best route. It yes. is, it's- or my kids live, we moved into DePere Kirkwood to get closer to, you know, it's a very walking to school kind of thing. And when we were moving, my kids were all for it. But now they're like, oh, can you drive me? It's like, it's beautiful weather out here today, actually. And you're walking. It's like, oh, my God, my backpack's so heavy. I'm like, it's not half as heavy as it was back in the 80s. Don't talk to me about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, your Chromebook. It's so heavy. <laughs> I carried nine textbooks back there. Yeah. Yeah. And that was their 12 home. Um, yeah, it's been crazy. So you're spending a lot of time too. I know that you've got uh, some some clients on the coaching side. All their seasons are really ramping up. Um, what's, your, what's your weeks like now? Are you at soccer fields nine days a week? Yeah, kind of. It feels like it. So usually working with St. Louis City SC, you know, like media, like when we get to come to practice comes out usually like on a Sunday night and it's like, okay, I can guess, but these are the days I can go. Maybe I can get a player interview. This is a weird week. The week that we're recording is a week where they play on a Saturday, a Wednesday, and then a Saturday. So it gets all weird there. Um, and then of course on the mindset coaching, mind to define sign with seasons kicking back in high schools back in session clubs back in session um having clientele and and just partnering with lou fuse's girls academy and figuring out when can we you know when can we take time to work on mindset versus also just the touches and so yeah it kind of varies week to week which i kind of like i like that the weeks aren't the same um but again maybe that feeds to the fact that i never know which day it is (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, the the midweek city game really has messed with me too because I'm getting text messages all day like, "Oh, you're going to be at the game tonight." I'm like, "What game? Are you? It's it's Wednesday." Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh, yeah." Yeah, um, yeah right. So it looks going to make for some tired people tomorrow at work. So, <laughs> and and kids cuz I'm letting my kids go. Sorry, teachers. <laughs> so, so, quick question about tonight's game. Uh is it true if they win, they're mathematically in the playoffs? Is that how this works tonight? I believe so, yes. And what I what I don't know with the math is um I always let I always let the whenever I coached it was always a couple of dads who would know like in a tournament when you know like who beat ever who by how many goals guarantees that were whatever um but like uh you know what city is fighting for now uh they want home field advantage you know can they can they get another can they get a playoff game here at home which would be really crucial for them i think um to continue further so i think that's what probably the math is about cool ultimately uh one other thing i want to talk about before you roll us in here uh or mention um previous episode 
Coach Gunn's um, previous episodes caused some stirs because they were kind <laughs> of, you know, juxtaposed against one another in a way. Yeah. Uh, with with Bree McCarthy, uh, somebody who's known the club, you know, national circuit has played out, you know, not from St. Louis, played elsewhere, played in Europe um, as our, our next guest also. And then somebody who has been a very successful coach guns, um, Sarah Gunther um, at Oakville High School, who has played very competitively up through the collegiate level and truly does understand um, the kind of St. Louis's sort of love affair with with the high school and how important that's been in our soccer history and and how those two, you know, both admittedly don't work well together. Um, some of that, I think, personally, is systemic, in my opinion, uh, the way the systems are set up, but that, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, we have three grown-up groups, if you might look at it in a way. You've got coaching, you've got parents, um, maybe two parent groups, you know, maybe the, 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 the system, you know, on the high school side, it might be Misha, on the club side, it might be the particular right. uh, club, but in the middle of that triangle is a player, right? Is a middle of a triangle is a youth, is an athlete who's young, um, who I feel like sometimes as grownups, we forget that they have an opinion maybe, yeah. uh, maybe not as informed as we think they should be because they're young, but at the end of the day, we want them putting their head on their pillow at night and, and not wishing that maybe life was different, you know, and, and being understanding and being happy and, and not worried about being pulled between a couple of different forces that, you know, it's, it's not our journey, it's their journey. Yeah, and we forget that, I think, sometimes. It's super high stress on these kids. And, you know, it, we, we jokingly referenced in the show that um, part of the problem is like parents, when they go to these games and the kids walk out there, they, they see the last name on the jerseys and there's a direct connotation. And somebody that heard us say that joked, they were like, well, why don't they just go Brazilian style and go with their first names only? You know, yeah, just kind of like give them, yeah, to give them a little bit of like uh, their their own identity, just a symbol of identity. Because again, parents and coaches and everybody else are 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 you know forcing themselves into this issue, and uh, kids are losing. You know, from a stress standpoint, they're winning from a performance play standpoint. But I don't know, it's it's a big 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 topic though. Yeah, for sure, and, and you know the uh, in the. I don't think it would be awesome if this podcast could change systems. I don't think it will. But at the end of the day, if it, um, you know, just was was able to change the the two again, the two in some ways opposing parties uh, versus you know club versus high school versus you know in the girl side. I know JB, you know because of you have a, a son in the academy. We don't even have that. You know what that kind of adds another element, but if we remember there is a child, I don't care if they're 18, I don't care if they're 12, but there is a child really trying most times than not to please everybody and they can't. And, and they, they, some of them are, some of them aren't empowered and that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shitty place to be and it feels like crap. <laughs> well put. There's our soapbox now. <laughs> Time for the show. Okay, so I would like to welcome in Sky Eddie. And and if you're going to look up Sky Eddie, her name is spelled S-K-Y-E. I love that. That's a beautiful name for Sky and Eddie, E-D-D-Y. Sky, welcome in. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. 
Absolutely. And so many bullets. Like, you know, I, I love when people, soccer people too, especially, you know, they've played. So a player yourself, a goalkeeper. So everybody keep in mind we're talking to a goalkeeper and goalkeepers <laughs> are natural leaders, I have always found. Um, also being a player herself, right? A coach, a mom. And if you look up Sky on Twitter or anywhere else you might find her, you're going to find that she is the founder of the Soccer Parenting Association, the Sideline Project. And Sky, put your just your name in again, as you and I have talked before, and just like the list of things being speaker at places or writing an article, um, so many things. Um, let, I'll go back in just a second, but like it takes a special person, to, I think, to take on being <laughs> not just sitting there on the sideline, you know, cheering on your kid, but to say, I want to make some instrumental change in this game. What what took that for you? What was the force that said, I, I need to lend my experience and my voice to helping make changes in this? Yeah, well, I think a couple things come to mind right away. One is the game is just delivered to me over and over again throughout my entire life. From the very first time I started playing soccer, uh, you know, the relationships, the sense of identity, the travel, the growth personally that I've had through the game. and really the incredible people that I've interacted with. So I come to this really loving soccer and wanting just very deeply to make sure that it lives up to its potential to impact lives and communities. And um, and then the second kind of narrative to the story of, of the genesis of soccer parenting is that my daughter was about to quit soccer. She's eight, like, you know, she actually did quit soccer and played softball for a year. Um, and uh, it was because of a lot of reasons, but uh, a lot of it uh, was solvable, was because her environment wasn't conducive to the joy and inspiration that she needed in those moments. And some of it was my fault in how I was parenting. You know, of course, uh, it, it's c complex, but as I, real I just uh, realized one day that I wasn't happy with her learning environment at our club. She was uninspired and getting ready to quit. And when I asked other parents how they felt, they were all totally satisfied. And it struck me in that moment that until parents understand what a real high quality learning environment looks like, what our children deserve, until parents understand that, have clarity around that, then we really will be not meeting our potential to serve athletes and to keep them engaged and find this love of the game. Yeah, and if you don't know it can be any different or perhaps should be any different, you, you know, your experience from club to club or wherever your child's playing might just be like, well, I guess that's the way it goes. Exactly. What what I, I wrote an article last week for Soccer Parenting uh, and actually told that story about Callie, my daughter, quitting. And, you know, the, the takeaway of it was how many kids are quitting? And parents don't know this. Like the, we have such a large dropout rate of these young children and soccer. It's, it's one of the highest dropout rates after one season at around six, seven, eight years old. And I mean, there's lots of reasons for that. Kids are sports sampling. They choose another sport, whatever they might be. But how many kids are, are leaving the game because they're feeling uninspired by the learning environment that's in front of them? So, you know, that's just one small caveat. And, and, and part of the work that we're doing um, and when what drives me, you know, in, in this work, um, because at the end of the day, really foundational to our work is trust and collaboration between 
to your point of, you know, as you were talking in the intro, the sort of the triangle between coaches and parents and players, you know, we, we, we're working to establish trust and collaborative relationships there. You know, I think sometimes it gets, um, it's unspoken in a way, I feel, but it gets un said unsaid that, you know, well, it's competitive and you, you don't have to break, you know, competitive and having fun aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, studies show that the more fun you have, even when it's hard, right, even when oh, I had to run sprints or even when the game was really hard, if there is an element you, you can find your fun, players and parents, that, that actually performance is better for all around. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's clearly clear research on that from Dr. Amanda Vesek at George Washington University about really what the fun factors are and what fun looks like. And we know that kids want an environment where they're working hard. Now, what working hard for my son, who's a recreational type player looks like versus my daughter, who is a All-American looks like is totally different, but that's the nuance of coaching. And that's what we need to figure out for the children that are in front of us is how we meet those needs holistically. So yeah, absolutely. I think this whole competitive or winning, all of that takes a, a, a wrong turn if we don't talk about it properly. I mean. I want I want to win when I play. Like, <laughs> Me too. I, I want my kids to want to win. I don't like to lose at Uno. I like a slash slap four draw fours down. I don't care what the new <laughs> rules are. I'll make my seven year old cry. <laughs> and, and so we want our kids to develop a winning mindset. We just don't. We 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 don't have to have them win. Like the the idea that they would win all the time is a misnomer. And we really don't want our kids to win all the time in an ideal world if they're going to be developing a growth mindset. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think. I think you know part of this work that I've done, and it's been so exciting, is just really trying to deep dive into some of the narratives that we speak about often in youth sports, but we don't adequately define. And you know, trying to provide some thought leadership um, around some of these different topics. And to your point, winning is is definitely is, is definitely one of them. Sky, yeah, for sure. Sky, I've got a quick question. Um, you know, because Jen was mentioning earlier, and you just referenced that that triangle, the symbolism of the triangle and the kid in the middle. And one of the legs that I'm curious about as to how you approach it. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, coaching tips and tricks for actual coaches to try and find that balance, especially at the youth ages, the the younger youth ages of fun and development and competition and all those things that seems uh, not necessarily black and white but i think there's a certain order to it my question to you is how do you or do you have a system in place or uh, a process to work with parents on managing that process because you know the coach has them for an hour hour and a half of training and then one hour a game one game a week but there's a lot of hours spent at home in the car at dinner and all the stuff where you know those those type a parents um kind of get involved how do you address that side of the triangle mm -hmm. well i think you're spot on in that parents are highly influential in the lives of their children and our interactions with our children around sport really matter uh, and how we approach them as parents how we um, address it. I, I, I use this uh, kind of reference um, a lot is that um, in school, and both of my children have given me just for what it's worth, full permission to shock all these stories that I say, I'm never violating any of their privacy or anything. But in school, my, my daughter is a high performing student. School came very easy for her. She's my oldest. Callie went into school 
kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I'm not even really thinking about it. I'm just pretty much packing her, helping her pack her bag or packing her bag and picking her up and she's managing it all. My son is dyslexic and has a lot of learning challenges. And when he went to school, it suddenly became very clear to me, oh wait, I have to dive in here. I've got to learn a little bit more about how to support him. And this is, I think, a good way for us to think about being sports parents. We don't know what how to support our children. In fact, one of the reasons Callie quit is because of my attitude towards sport that she was feeling. Now she would say, no, mom, it really wasn't that bad. I don't really remember. But I know that I had a lot of reflection and learning to do as a sports parent. And you would have thought with my playing background, my coaching background, I had my B license, I had coached collegiately, I had been an All-American in college, I had been a youth coach for 20 years when my daughter came up in the game. You would have thought that I would have like been a really good sports parent and I really struggled. And so this is where we need to dive in. And all parents, I think, regardless of their background in sport, need to have some moments of reflection, reflect on how sport was for them, how sport is for their child, what kind of community is being delivered. And yes, um, JB, to answer your question, we have a lot of education about that. Our education platform, Soccer Parent Resource Center, is essentially a, a platform for parents, all soccer parents, to give them, regardless of uh, where they may be showing up, in uh, whether they're really seeking help or whether they're just sort of diving in because they feel like it might be good to take a course, whatever it is, uh, you know, we're, we're there to help um, parents. The objective being keeping kids involved with soccer so they can fall in love with it and develop healthy habits they'll take with them for life. Being competitive players, sometimes one might mistake like, oh, they know what they're doing because they played, right? They they did those things. But just because you're used to all that stuff, the very first time you're a parent and your kid steps on a pitch, might as many as it might be, you have as zero experience as any other parent out there that that in being a parent to that athlete. Absolutely. I hear from parents all the time. Oh, I finally figured it out on my third kid. Like if only I had understood this, <laughs> you know, for child one, they'd still be playing, but I pushed them away from the sport in well intentionally. Like I, I, I was trying my best. I thought I was doing right. And, you know, all the more reason why I really need to dive into education and be encouraging parents to, to gain insights into how to best support their children on the fields. Um, you know, we, th there's so much pressure in these environments for kids. There's so much unnecessary pressure to, to win and to perform and, um, and also a lot of perceived pressure uh, that we need to address. And um, I think for us to really gain some insights and in how we can show up and support and, and to make sure that our kids are in the right environments that are suitable for them and have kind of reality checks for our children you know, is, is essential kind of steps, if you will, at, at, through the sports parenting process. Okay. Can I ask a quick question about um, compartmentalizing uh, kids as players? Um, you know, because when we talk about or we think about the next level, you know, the common saying is, you know, well, that for the one percenters, you know, we're looking for the one percenters at this club or at this academy or at this school, et cetera which by default means there's 99% of everybody else that isn't that. In your program, in your system, do you address that differentiation between, 
you know, the, the, the true one percenters, the, the GA girls or the MLS next boys. And, you know, those players that are prospecting into a power conference or, or even pro and beyond, do you treat that differently for those families that, that work with you or are they still all just kids and it, you know, it's about the process? Uh, well, because like that process and how the children might be showing up to that process is different. Sort of that I said before with my daughter being more of a high performance player, my son being more recreational in nature, like their process is different. So yes, absolutely. I think we need to give parents some insights and we have a lot of content on the platform for high performance players, for parents who have kids that have big dreams and how, um, you know, parents, can support that. But of course, a lot of that information there is like Steve Cook from Atlanta to Cookie talking about the nonlinear nature of development and how we have no idea what a 14 year old is going to be, even if they have these high dreams. And even if, and so, and so big picture for parents and all parents is, is loving your child and supporting them and, uh, and digging in when you need to, to give them what they want. Uh, the trick, I think, is you know making sure that a kid, the child, the player, uh, to for, to Jen's point, that the youth <laughs> is is leading the way, and you know we're not always clear on exactly what that means. But um, yeah, I, I think that you know going back to this this even this one percenter, I, I think we need to sort of stop that narrative even from happening because all we're doing is just creating this selection bias for kids and early identifying children to be on a certain pathway. And, um, you know, that in itself is, is harming the, the all, all players. I think that we need to kind of stop um, sort of targeting and, and putting into different pathways kids so early and just let them continue to find joy. And that's a, they're actually, I stopped coaching at a particular club because my daughter at the time, she's 15 now, but she was 14 and I was asked to, you know, turn in a ranking of my players. I'm like, there's seven. Like, <laughs> like there, there are a couple. She was one of them who were like, wow. Like you're looking at him going, look, look at that little seven year old goal. But that was, there was no indicator. Uh, there's nothing that to me was predictive yet yeah. of future success other than this little one just is really good with the ball at her feet right now. Uh, before her body changes, or this one who maybe right now doesn't seem as into it as the others might be in a few years. Like it would be, it felt wrong for me to to rank in a way, one way or the other, honestly, um, because uh, it's their seven. I have a, yeah. my youngest is seven right now. And, you know, every other day she's deciding, you know, she's going to be an astronaut and then she's going <laughs> to be a gymnast and, you know, Currently, she's watching, she thinks Pitch Perfect is great, and she needs to try out for America's Got Talent because she would surely win. So, <laughs> you know, and she yeah. also happens to be pretty good on a ball right now, but she's seven. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that structurally in nature, we have created structures within the new soccer that requires us to identify players. So maybe your club, like the club where I'm working, has a, a U8 program that is for children that are expressing or demonstrating, because it, it could be both. One could, we really want to be there and maybe 
uh, have a little bit of catch up to do from the physical side or from a functional movement side versus another player might have all of the movement and mentally might not be there. So regardless, we, we, we identify and select kids early. And as long as we're doing that, as long as any club has different levels for kids at these young ages, then we're going to be continuing to facilitate the sense of talent identification in, in a way that doesn't make any sense. I think, I think knowing that that is likely going to continue to be the case with a country of our size, um, that we then need to flip the script on that conversation and say, what are we doing for the kids that don't make that team? And what type of quality learning environment are we providing that is conducive to the mentality and to the uh, you know, physical potential of the, the other seven-year-olds who don't necessarily make that. And that's where I think we have a big opportunity in the United States is to, to rethink what happens to the children that aren't selected there. So that, you know, to use my friend, Marcus Sullivan, um, who's working um, now, he's teaching at a college in Oslo. He was for a long time with AIK in Sweden, uh, you know, as many as possible, as long as possible in the best environment as possible is what we need to be seeking for our youth athletes. I love that. And and I'll call it, I'll just, JB, I know I'll just call it out. I, I won't name the club, but what really ended up coming down on that particular one at the time, again, there's seven, um, were there were sisters on the team that, you know, and, and they were very different. Um, one was short. Uh, she was quick. She was, you know, really, and she was the one that was really into it. The taller sister who was, you know, arguably a little faster over distance. Um, oh, her legs are longer. Bit, a little bit, yeah, legs are longer, a little bit more probably when you just glanced at it, the most, the more athletic one, and I'm using quotes here, um, one was kind of selected and the other one wasn't. And the, and the, 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 the parent, I'm going to go on this parent's word, told me that what was said was, you know, we, we, we want them tall and we will teach them the rest. And I thought, no, that's actually, it should be the opposite, right? Like, the one that that taller one really didn't want to go to practice. She wasn't really having a lot of fun in this environment. But the little one, she was all into it. So can't we can't we do both? You know, yeah. if if and can't we can't we work away? And it just didn't feel right. And that's what yeah. frankly pissed me off at the time. So yeah, I mean, leadership matters, and we are seeing an improvement in leadership. I think across our youth space, it's been exciting to see. You know, some, um, you know, executive director leadership at clubs, leagues, um, really stepping up their game and learning and getting better. But leadership matters. And, uh, you know, we do need to kind of push back on that narrative. And and not that I ever want my work to be parents against coaches, but I want parents to have some clarity. Like, like this is not okay for my seven-year-old. Or that doesn't make any sense that the coach just said that. What the parent does with that information, it doesn't need to be, you know, but, but as parents start to know that, then coaches and clubs won't be able to say that anymore. Right. <laughs> and then we're just going to all get better. That's the end of the day, what, what I'm you know, trying to seek with this culture change and work that we're doing. Do, do you think that it's possible, uh, give, just given the general landscape of soccer in general in the United States and the, and the growth, the popularity, the really the explosion of popularity of the game, um, especially on the women's side, because, you know, we're talking 1991 was the first women's world cup, you know, that that's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, in women, professional women's leagues, there's been a few kind of that have hit and missed quickly. And now it looks as if the current league has a little bit more stability. 
it's becoming very in vogue for kids to love soccer, be it via FIFA, you know, <laughs> a video game, uh, the Messi effect, the women's national team effect. All these things are kind of like snowballing. Do you, do you see that the popularity of the game is is it helping matters from your standpoint in, in the realm that you're working in so much that you have a lot of people that are new to the game, whereas in other countries, it's part of the culture. It's not part of most of our you know, neighborhoods and communities' culture. How, how, is that, how have you seen that move the needle over your years of doing what you've been doing with the rise of popular, and, and the po- popularity of the game? Yeah, I mean, for sure, we're starting to see like next generation, second generation soccer parents. You know, my parents never played soccer growing up. They had no idea what was going on. Uh, they love the game now. They watch almost every game of the Women's World Cup. It was, I love it. Like they're such enthusiasts of the game now. But, um, you know, they they just supported me. And so we are definitely seeing some next generation. I mean, uh, I think it, it the, the growth of the game that we've seen, uh, whether that be in the men's or the women's game, just the growth of the popu- popularity of soccer in America is absolutely, you know, driving our messaging. Um, I, I hope that we can keep the, the conversation around a love of the game, because um, I think that we often get development confused and we talk about development as far as development of, of skill or development of players. but you know, at the end of the day, I think what we can all agree on, what everyone in various clubs and whether they're a club leader, a coach, a parent, a referee, what everyone can agree on is the development of a love of the game. And so um, the more we continue to focus on that, then many of these players will drop uh, drop off playing, become a referee, become a coach, become a next generation parent, you know, that's coaching and and has some knowledge of the game. And the, the more that we do that, as the same time, like youth development needs to improve. So experiences that that coaches, the parents have right now, you know, I hope that youth development improves dramatically in the next 15 years. And so, you know, this next generation of parents will have the benefit of knowing what, you know, what solid development looks like. Cool. I think it's important too. probably a good time now if, if JB, unless you want to go somewhere else and say, what I didn't lead with was should have been probably your background is that to make sure that our listeners know that, you know, not only talking to somebody who played some, <laughs> played a lot actually. And, you know, real quick, could you give a little quick backstory of, you know, your player development from when you were young? And I know you've also played overseas for a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I grew up, I was born in 1971. So I'm a Title IX baby, as, as, as close as they come. Gen Xers. Um, <laughs> yeah, 73 here, my friend. <laughs> and uh, I was really, really lucky to grow up in uh, Reston, Virginia, so Northern Virginia, um, in a really progressive new community where sports were evolving. That was really uh, the community centered around physical activity, and there were fields everywhere. So, um, yeah, I grew up um, playing co-ed rec soccer until I tried out for the Reston Ramblers when I was probably 10. And um, and I played and then grew up in WAGS and in travel soccer in Northern Virginia. I played for, um, you know, ODP was the primary development pathway for kids. So, um, you know, I was a, I was a youth All-American. I was in the ODP national team player pool as a youth. Um, 
had a lot of great opportunities. You were just saying the first World Cup, they actually called it the World Championship, was in 1991. You know, that's really my generation of players. A lot of my friends and people that I grew up with were over there playing. And um, and so, you know, really grew up as the, as the game grew up. I played collegiately at University of Massachusetts. I transferred, I played my last season at George Mason University where we lost in the national championship game to Chapel Hill. Um, I was an All-American, I was MVP of the Final Four. And then many years later decided I just had to play it. So, so I, I, this, is, this is my last game was this national championship game. And, and, and in large part, that's the last game I ever played because there wasn't a pro league in the States. Um, there was nothing I, after that. I had signed a contract to go overseas and play in the J League. I turned down that contract, was working with Robbie Stahl to go and play in Sweden. That contract fell through at the last minute. And so I was like, what do I do? And I got a great job working for Lanzara, which was a manufacturer of soccer equipment um, who uh, is no longer uh, in business, although they are going to be relaunching a um, a lifestyle brand shortly. So those of you who are my generation that grew up with Lanzara, be on the lookout for it. It's exciting. Um, and I had a great job there. And then finally it was like, I have got to go and play. And so I sold everything and moved overseas to Udine, Italy and played um, not even for a season. I never could get the visa I needed. Um, you know, technically it was professional in that I was paid and I had ever, all my living expenses paid for and could live off of that. But it really wasn't, you know, I don't think the league was a professional league known known as that at the time. Um, yeah, and then in addition to all that, I've always been a coach. I'm a goalkeeper. I, I worked for Dr. Matnick at the number one goalkeeper camps for many years. I was his first female director. And then I went on and worked for Tony DiCicco at Soccer Plus for over 10 years as a director for him. So really have been influenced by some incredible people in the game from a coaching and leadership standpoint. Uh, when it comes down to you know the 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 essence of what I'm talking about with youth development and being holistic in nature, I mean Tony was a master of that. So, so here we have this this person right here talking to to me and you, JB, who's got like all the experience, but admittedly, none experience, none set you up to be a, a sports or soccer parent and know know exactly what to do the first time your kids' cleats hit the pitch. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it was it was a challenge because uh, my daughter's mentality is much different than mine. That that's what made it so hard is that I just assumed that the way I pro and and I'm making assumptions about how I was at six. Like I'm mm -hmm. thinking of myself as like maybe the 13 year old athlete and and pushing that on to my six year old daughter athlete. You know, because I don't really remember what it was like at six. At six, I was like literally like making motions with my arms in gold to look at the shadows while people were playing, you know? <laughs> so like, so, you know, I, I kind of forgot about that as I, as I was trying to, to parent her. Oh, JB, I thought you had something. Well, I was, I was just kind of wondering, cause it's been ringing in the back of my head here, listening to you talk and, and specifically, you know, your compare contrast between your own children, uh, boy and girl, two different needs, two different playing levels, you know, and then earlier I was asking you about how to deal with parents on that triangle of stress, we'll call it, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm thinking about, you know, just what we see on the sidelines within our own circles, our immediate circles, the difference between dads and moms. Um, do you see kind of in your work, in your, 
experience in your research and process, do you see a difference in how you approach it for, uh, you know, young boys and girls between the two and, and on the flip side, all the way up to the parents, you know, uh, moms and dads, is there, is there kind of a difference in approach when, uh, when it comes to sex in your, your viewpoint because of, be it puberty or maturity or things like that that come at different paces? How, how do you deal with that? And is, is it even uh, a topic that you, that you focus on? We certainly do a lot of education around supporting players. And we've talked about, you know, the different mentalities of players. We've dove in a little bit to, to gender and how different children learn or show up. But I think it's really important for me to not, and I, I feel the same way about parents and coaches, like uh, for us not to make too many assumptions about people and to put them into sort of boxes. Like this is the boy, this is the girl, this is the mom parent, this is the dad parent and make assumptions about people. Instead, I think the approach that we have at soccer parenting is to say, how can we help? Or to say, how can we help you reflect because you understand your environment or the dynamic of your relationship between your spouse and how you're together showing up to be a sports parent. I mean, that's a big issue. Um, you know, so we can we can dive in to those topics, but bigger picture than anything is we want parents to know they have a community, that, that we're here to help, that there's other people that are experiencing the same experiences that, that they are. And, you know, if we can foster those relationships amongst parents to get the support, that's the best thing that we can do. I think it's important too what you're saying just you know it doesn't matter what age they are whether they you know hit the little mini pitch 3v3 and they're all really just playing for that concession stand ticket that's really all <laughs> they want right at the time is do we get a one dollar ticket or are we get a two dollar ticket um and you we like, don't do that in northern virginia what are you oh, doing oh yeah well i was at a, a parish that you know that was kind of like after the Wait. game i guess we've gone from bringing snacks and orange slices oh, jb to oh. like giving them a little like, well in virginia in virginia ticket. they hand out little mini hams you know for the kids because you know. <laughs> you you know, whether they're three or they're 23 you as a parent right myself you cannot outwork your kid in that sport like it doesn't matter how hard as a parent you work at talking about the game, loving the game, like how much demonstrative stuff you do on the sideline. Does you cannot get your like release yourself? And I had to tell myself like release yourself of expectations of yourself, Jennifer, as a parent that mm -hmm. his or her. I have like two boys and two girls. Performance out there is not reflective of how hard. I tried with them. It's not because at the end of the day, you know, even a coach knows, you know, I can put them on the line and I can tell you're going to run some sprints and I can tell them they need to make it by a certain time, but I cannot make them run fast, you know, and as yeah. a parent, I cannot make them love it. I can't make them work hard, but I sure can probably make them not love it. If I'm not careful. I was just thinking that as you said that, I was like, but you can make them not love it. That was exactly what was going through my mind. Um, I also think that, you know, as we're, kind of thinking about how we can support our kids and how we show up for them. And like, uh, I, I call it, um, there's like a psychological term for separating yourself from your child, like separating 
what you believe about you being different than what you're, you think you're about your child. And I think that this is a really important thing that we go through. I always, when people would say to me, oh, don't live vicariously through your child, I would be like, I'm not. Like, I don't, I- I know, I, I already I played. <laughs> like, like, and, and I would feel so strongly about that. It would almost be offensive to me if somebody would insinuate that. But I will say that there was this need that I had to sort of separate myself. It wasn't like I was putting pressure on her to be me. By no means did I feel that at all. I wanted her to be her best and I could see what uh, opportunity she had to get better. And so I, I could see that, but I really needed to distance myself from that and let her figure out those lessons on her own. Like I could, I could be clear about her not living up to her potential when it came to training harder. Like she wasn't training as hard as she could train, but that is not my role to try to facilitate that or to even remind her of that fact. My job is to love her and to help give her some inspiration and to be a, a place of belief. And then my job also is to help her find moments of inspiration from other people who might be able to give her those lessons. And so, you know, choosing and, and being clear on who she's being coached by and different environments that she's in without pressuring her to go or anything like that, but just making sure that the right people were centering and circling around her made a huge difference in her because um, those lessons needed to come from her, not from me or from yeah. them. And I, I feel like, too, um, I see it. I used to, like yourself, you know, once you've played, you kind of get suckered into coaching, right? Like, oh, there's nobody played. Let's get that person to coach. So I coached for a while, and, and now I don't coach soccer teams anymore. But in the mental skills world and mindset, I see this difference, too, with parents when I'm onboarding a kid. So when they, you know, usually it's a, it's a mom or a dad. I've kind of found it's almost 50-50 with who who kind of comes my way in that. Sure. And I find that some, I literally have parents who we, we sat down to meet for the first time and I keep it very open. I'm working with the youth. So, you know, you're more than welcome to be there. The work goes better though, when the parents aren't there. So like mm -hmm. when we've established a relationship and then they say, Hey, you know, I'm meeting at my, my local grocery store has an upper mezzanine where you can work. And so we'll meet up there and the parents will go grocery shopping. Those are the best conversations when the parents are inordinately involved in the, in the, because they want to be sure, like, you know, is the, is their child telling me everything? Are they really being open and honest? And are they really, they want to really be understood and they want their kid to be understood by me. Actually, it hurts our conversation a little bit because yeah. the kid will get a little bit quieter. So I see yeah. it. It's interesting. It happens. I bet, I bet teachers could tell the same story. Exactly. I think it's, it is pretty common. Uh, the psychological term I was looking for earlier, I couldn't remember is decoupling. And so, you know, we just need to sort of decouple ourselves from our children. And that's, I think your story <laughs> is an absolute perfect, like demonstration of that, of, okay, instead of caring so deeply and yes, you could see the lessons you want them to learn. And so like trying extra hard to make sure that they're getting taught those instead, just decoupling and giving your child over to a trusted adult who hopefully will help them over time find their path.
You know, you could also yeah, de- I actually oh go ahead. Please. Well, no, I was going to say you could also decouple by handing them the payment book for college tuition. <laughs> and you know, you know, there's other My ways. My 17-year-old and I are having those conversations. <laughs> but you know, to your point, I I I didn't I didn't get to read the whole thing, but in, like just glancing sky at all your work, there's an article and I'm sure you have many that you wrote about like six ways to to you know support your kid or six reasons this in particular was six reasons to not watch your kid practice yeah like that's actually one of the most divisive articles that i do if you read through the comments on that oh i'm sure and and here's here's why like i've been the parent like when honestly i think i started not watching because i just got outnumbered by my kids i literally couldn't be there Mm -hmm. all the time it wasn't but before, you know, I'd be, I'd either be coaching or I'd be, you know, good time to get your steps in. Or I had a baby in a carriage and we would walk around, but I'd be watching and, you know, see my kid like, what is he doing? Was he not paying attention? Like, is he not being a good kid? And, yeah. and I remember myself speaking out more and then just sheer life got in the way. And I think life got better for them the less yeah. I got involved. Well, so, also- so if, if I may, I, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Just from a standpoint of at any competitive level, if kids are competitive or, or want to be competitive, you guys know I, I, you know, obviously I played as well. Um, so much of the success that is procured or that occurs on the game field when you're wearing the jersey and the lights are on, etc., that success is ultimately derived from training. Um, you know, what, you know, the training habits and work ethic and all these things. And I think there's a fine line. Do I think parents should be on the sideline for every training and watch and definitely do not yell at little Johnny or Janie. Don't do that. But educate yourself as to where your child really is in the process. You should be cognizant of, are they the first one back from water break? Are they the last one back? Are they, you know, if it's a new drill, what are you going to do with that information? Though, David? Well, I think it's, I think it's, one. I think it's one of those things for parents to just, because how many times as coaches, and we've all been a coach that parent a walks up and, you know, and their child was 50% playing time because they deserved probably 30% playing time, but because they paid, we got to at least do half the game. Right. Um, and they ask, well, why is, you know, my child, why are they not getting the minutes? And it, you know, and, and you can't say, well, because they're, they're not performing in the game. The real answer is the two practices this week, they didn't care. They didn't try. They were last and this or that, or, mm-hmm. you know, why so, can't you tell the parents that? Uh, you can, be, but they don't want to hear that most of the time or they're not there. My point is like, if they're there some, and I'm not advocating again, do not line up the chairs and sit there in training and watch all this. But I think that there needs to be some part of this parent education process. Training is critical because it, it, training is where coaches are making all their decisions. Games are the fun part for coaches as well. You know, it's just, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking maybe about more of a high-performing environment. I would really hope, and the work that we're doing at Soccer Parenting is I would really, really hope that the coach would feel excited and have a collaborative, trust-filled relationship with that parent so they could even go to the parent before the game and say, hey, listen, your child's not going to get as much playing time because 
they really you know need to work on their attitude during training these are the four things that i saw and i'd be happy to address them with them and i will have a conversation with them individually about it and that's the conversation and the parent goes thanks coach i really appreciate your support of my child and helping them learn like that is possible i know that i say that and there's people going yeah right it's totally possible if yeah. we create an environment that is trust filled within the ecosystem as a coach, if we take responsibility of creating that type of environment, showing up to establish trust filled relationships, showing up as a coach that you deserve the trust of the parents, and then being able to work and support parents who might be struggling with that. Because yeah, even if the parent pushes back, you still as a coach need to be self-confident and trust yourself to the point where you can say back to the parent confidently, that that you believe in the decision that you're making and then send them over for some education but and and the club has to support us like youth soccer has to get better our club culture has to get better our knowledge our beliefs our values our behaviors have to improve like what we're doing is not working and so to just kind of belabor that point just a little bit that's where we're trying to get now going back to the not watching practice all the time is, you know, this was, I, I also wrote a follow-up article of five reasons why you should watch practice. <laughs> you, you followed um, up with, I was just kidding. No, 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 really. no, no, not at all. <laughs> I wasn't kidding, but, but yeah, maybe there, maybe you have a super shy child that really wants you there and that they need you there. Maybe you're genuinely worried about the safety of your child based on bullying situations or uh, you're not, don't know the coach yet. You're not going to just leave your seven-year-old daughter with a coach that you've never met ever before you want to watch a practice and get a handle around it but the autonomy that our kids develop and how import, important that is to their sense of motivation um, their ability to build their own relationships and if i can go back to that and tell a quick story that happened to me with my daughter when i stopped going to her practices and i wasn't ever going to her practices intentionally but i was coaching on the field next door and so what would happen is that she would be playing and my group of goalkeepers would take a water break. I'd start watching and I'd pick up on things and I'd see just that. Oh, she was the last back after the water break. She's still tying her shoe. Come on, Callie, finish tying your shoe. And then Callie would get in the car and I would say things to her like, Callie, you have to pay attention more or you have to, you know, do you think that, you know, maybe a goal that you can set next time is to get back from the water break first or second? You should try that. That, that's not my role as a parent. My role in, and everything shifted when I moved my practices away from her, she would get in the car after practice and I would say, tell me about practice. That was brilliant. Then everything was so much better. And, um, you know, I think giving our kids a space to grow and evolve and understand themselves and to develop is really important. You know what I hear? I feel like I hear here and I'm, it's, it's curiosity, right? And, and I and I'm not saying that we've 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 all heard we hear bad stories, right? You hear bad parent stories, you hear bad coach stories, and yeah, and they they exist. But on the whole, I would being a being a coach who at times felt misunderstood or mm -hmm. judged because you know my player goes home and says something about an interaction we had, and and frankly, it's not that it was a lie, but it was not all like I love my kids, but I know my twelve year old is going to give his version of what he thinks happened, and he's twelve. Like the, this is we all know their 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 brains aren't fully developed. That I don't. It's not that I don't believe him, but I've done a much better job if I've been curious. Like 
you know, what you, so, so tell me again, like, you know, what happened and, and tell me again, kind of what was said or tell me again. And then sure enough, if I, if I've done that with, with age and time, I find that maybe my fingers aren't so quick to type, um, an email that doesn't belong happening because it's like, oh, so this is actually mm -hmm. kind of what went down or he missed that part about the fact that he wasn't positioned appropriately or that, yeah. yeah. I, the vast majority of parents are level-headed parents who are sometimes stressed. I think all of us would would claim, you know, put ourselves into that category. And, and these are the parents that we're trying to reach at Soccer Parenting. So what's happened is that the only parents that we talk about as coaches historically have been the crazy parents. And because of that, as coaches, as club leaders, we have decided to distance ourselves from parents, not interact with them, not give them any information. And so all that's grown is this bigger divide between parents and between coaches. And sadly, who's led that divide is the crazy soccer parent. And so what we're trying to do is give voice to the majority of parents who are on the other side of that, the level-headed and sometimes stressed parents. And when we can provide those parents with education, with resources, with guidance, when we can, as a coach, show up in, in a, which takes more time and, you know, and, and holistically supporting these players and working with parents, establishing trust, that's when we're going to see the culture change. We're, we're going to always have crazy parents. We're going to always have ill-intentioned or not well-intentioned or educated coaches. Like those are always going to exist. But the problem is the imbalance of power that we've seen historically in our structures. And so we have to give the power back to the level-headed parents so that those parents can sort of give rise to the culture that we want. That culture that we want as coaches is for the parent to be genuinely curious and to say, okay, and come to you instead of why didn't they play is like, can can we is there something i need to address at home <laughs> instead yeah. of why didn't they play you know yeah. so that is possible those relationships are possible we're seeing them happening it's it's brilliant imagine a culture of you know synergy between them we, we there's no denying that 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 even if the parent didn't play the particular sport like i didn't wrestle when i grew up my kid my 12 year old also wrestles and but you know i've watched enough matches to start to know what some of these signs mean and who's getting points and oh my gosh, he did something and didn't get points for that. Like in the couple of years I've been watching and just being an athlete, you can kind of gauge that. And so it, it was kind of blissful, honestly, in the first, I think, year or two for him because it was like, I didn't know. I'm like, did you have fun? Mm -hmm. Like, did you, <laughs> boy, that guy wiped the floor with your face. Are you okay? You know, like these questions. And then the more I've kind of become educated a little bit about wrestling, I've had to watch myself and, and like be like, why are my questions changing because I know a little bit more and, and maybe they're not helpful and yeah. remember that I have to, he's 12 still. And sometimes he's a big dumb dumb and I'm like, Oh my God, Liam, what are you doing? But he really is a smart kid who's perfectly capable of talking with his coach. And yeah. is, am I not maybe more of a facilitator of his relationship with a coach? And if I could wrap my hands around, you know, my arms around that, maybe mm -hmm. I'm a better, better parent of that sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, your level of curiosity and reflection is so important. And we don't necessarily do that enough, or that's an opportunity that parents have to really support kids more. Um, and, and, you know, that needs to be facilitated from the, the coaches and the clubs, like this encouragement of parents to be educated and to ha have 
more understanding of the sport while at the same time gaining understanding about youth development and um, you know how kids learn and uh, how all children are not going to end up on the same pathway and celebrating your child just exactly where they are. Uh, I wrote an article on that a while ago when the Mr. Rogers movie was out and you know it's like I love you just the way you are is sort of the theme of that song and that movie and man I, I just was reflecting on how I, I could have done a much better job with this. Instead yeah, I think saying, that doesn't mean it's not competitive. Like when you said that, Sky, hmm. immediately my brain flashed to four or five people that I know in my competitive group of parents. We all played men and women who would be like, oh, that's for like the recreational side. No, yeah, it's not. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, what I did worked. Um, you know, I went on this personal reflection journey. I founded Soccer Parenting when Callie quit soccer. She came back to soccer. She played rec. She then tried out for travel. She then played ECNL, um, you know, so she ended up finding this high performance place. And, you know, uh, along the way, I've interviewed hundreds of people from all across the world that are working in the higher levels of youth development and lower levels, but are experts in youth development, whether it be recreational or higher and what, youth development or the psychology of sport or the physical development of athletes or just talking about larger leadership issues within sport. So. I've reflected and I've learned. And as I have done all of that, my daughter has started to thrive. And, uh, you know, at the end of her senior year in high school, we sent her overseas to Spain. She lived for a semester and did Tovo with Todd Bean. And, you know, I sent Callie to Spain with the idea that I wanted soccer to her, her, her to help her understand how soccer can help her find her place in the world. And Callie came back, just such a different player. Unbelievable, I literally didn't recognize her playing. And, you know, just from my own curiosities and my learning, you know, I, what I say, it worked. And my daughter had quit soccer and she just graduated as an All-American from college. Like um, the, the opportunities are there if we just let our kids find their way along their journey and learn and reflect as parents along the way. And doesn't that lend credence then, right, to the, it, we, we talk about it in just human relationships, right? Like, you know, work on yourself and you will find as you change the relationships around you change and how great that can, empowering too, that can be for a parent who often, you know, I've found myself sometimes feeling a little powerless, but to be like, ah, if I work on me and how I relate with my kid and how I help their journey, I actually am a whole lot more empowered and I don't take on unnecessary stress that isn't mine to have. Yeah, and, and what a great couples. place that is. There you go. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also want to be very clear. Like, like we have this misnomer that that high level competition requires certain mindsets. And I just want to be very clear for anyone questioning that it doesn't like it doesn't necessarily require a specific type of mindset. I'm not saying some kids don't work and operate in a high performance mindset with a similar mindset that I had. Um, or, or, but, but everyone kind of approaches this differently. And what we know is foundational to everyone. And I think all three of us, I would hope would reflect on it is that, that soccer needed to be fun for me. Soccer needed to be filled with joy and inspiration. And I will tell you, that's what Callie learned from her time in Spain is she came back with joy, like she loved the game. It was, it was so much different for her. She felt no stress or no pressure. Instead, she just felt love. And it's kind of the same thing with coaches, like the coaches that are feeling stress and pressure to compete or perform, 
they're the ones that have these, you know, struggling relationships with the parents, <clears throat> the coaches that trust themselves and have joy, like they're the ones that can be more holistic and open and supportive. So, you know, a lot of this just comes down to self-trust and, 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 you know, not getting caught up in the narrative of all the perceived pressures that we have. Like this is soccer. This is a game that we can, you know, go forth and, uh, you know, find our place in the world through it, but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be cutthroat like that. Um, it, it's kind of hard nuance. I don't know if I'm explaining it well. No, but. well, I love it. And if I may, um, I find just an incredible opportunity to kind of segue into maybe a part B an advanced part B of what we were just talking about. Specifically, you talked about your daughter coming back from Spain and something was in the water there, right? That she fell in love with the game. Probably her skills were exponentially more advanced. And there was things that happened in her time there from a game standpoint, probably from a mental standpoint as well, that just worked. And mm -hmm. here just recently, you know, the Women's World Cup, we watched that country, that team do just that. I mean, it was clear when you watch them play. They were having mm -hmm. fun, right? Yes, beautiful. And so my question is, kind of sitting in the position that you are, because you've you've spent so many years frontline as a player, as a coach, you know, NCAA levels all the way through, and you know, and then watching this experience with your daughter, and then in you know, in a different uh, you know env environment, we watch the World Cup, and that Spanish team wins in the way that they did. My question is this. Do you think U.S. soccer, do you think, uh, you know, on the women's side in particular, what what do you think they are doing right or wrong compared to what you saw from your daughter's lived experience and then watching that team? Do you see any just glaring hiccups in our process that based on your experience, your family's experience, and then again, like I said, watching Spain win, what are we missing from mm -hmm. from from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, when Callie came back, I had a lot of curiosity around this because from all intents and purposes, she had very good coaching from her ECNL environment. You know, high quality coaches that are working with our youth national teams, coaches that have, you know, a license, established themselves, been in the youth game for a long time. And it was unbelievable to me how much she learned in three months is something was not working. If, 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 such big change happened. She saw the game differently. The game suddenly became about space, about time, about positioning. The game became about uh, things. She just, she just. Do you know the picture that we used to see as a kid? This is what I, how I explain it. And it, it was like a picture of a witch, but then all of a sudden you could look at it and it could be a picture of something else. I don't remember, yeah, like a wolf yeah. or something like that. Or a dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's that's what happened for her. She was seeing the game like the witch and then something happened when she was there and all of a sudden it was a whole different game. And it wasn't like she was looking at her playing the ball from here to there. She was looking at the space beyond and how she could create different things and what was going to happen next and what she needed to do. Like it just totally shifted for her. Do, and do, uh, do that you... was very, that was, that was developing. I mean, that was, that was Barcelona. That was her working with Todd Bean. Todd is the you know the the son-in-law or the the son-in-law of Johan Cruyff. He worked for 14 years with Johan, and you know Johan developed in many ways this Barcelona way. And 
this total football, this is Tovo is total football, T-O-V-O, the Dutch total football, um, like it works. <laughs> and yes, we're definitely doing something. We, we have a massive opportunity to do better. This is a big topic though, because so many of our kids' first experiences are with recreational volunteer parent coaches that have no idea, but are trying their best. And yeah. uh, we have, this, this, is, this is a massive project that could that could happen but um well, i have no doubt that we're missing uh, a lot of of key points about how we develop and then i was in spain for five weeks this spring and i saw barcelona through champions league i watched a lot and it was just it's just beautiful to watch and uh yeah, we're, we're we are you know I, I i we're doing a disservice to our kids by not being more curious about youth development. That was, I wrote that article, like it was impossible for me to watch the team play and not say, what do we need to do next? Uh, you know, how do we need to change? There's there's a lot that needs to be changed. And you know, there's so many coaches doing incredible work and, and doing great work with kids. Uh, we just, there, there's a lot of opportunities still to be realized. Well, and JB, I think you and I talked about this uh, maybe on the last one slightly, or maybe it was off mic, I don't remember, but, um, my my oldest had a chance to do like a cool soccer trip to Holland and, you know, went and, and played with the Holland kid, the Dutch kids. And JB, I think you've talked a little bit like it's not just in the coaching right to player. It's also the culture on sidelines, the culture yeah. at home about the game that that my my husband came back and, and he actually played in a very lower levels of the Bundesliga and, and refereed MLS and FIFA. And so I felt like he kind of knew it all, but he came back with eyes wide open he said there's so much more we need to change for example just one game he said a player went down like a player you know went down got hurt and in true american parent style you know they get back up and they're like we, we're clapping like yay like we're, we're like yay they're not they're yay they're they're okay and the dutch parents were like what are you doing <laughs> like like why are you clapping because a player is hurt? Like that's that's rude. Like they're very quiet. You Americans, you're so yeah, weird. You, that's was, a little yeah, Dutch culture so, right there. For it you. was just funny, just a, like a, just a tiny tweak. And and George being being very curious, and and he speaks German as well. So I think he was able to have a conversation. Just talked a little bit about just some of the differences. He's like, he's like they didn't say anything. I'm like, did they cheer for their kids? He goes, not really. They just kind of yeah. watched. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that goes across all of Europe. Like, there's a okay. lot of places that still like have issues with parents and and stuff on the sidelines. I know that for sure. But I do think that culturally, that there are some cultures that are better positioned uh, to you know sort of and let their children go. I, I hear a lot of those stories in Sweden, Norway, Holland, about you know <laughs> development sort of being a little bit uh, well, kind of like the parents are just there. To support their kid they're not there with any major sense of investment themselves do, do you think part of the problem is maybe just landscape and logistics uh you know because you mentioned sweden you mentioned netherlands etc and these are these countries are uh famous for a very linear system in so much they have a, a, a football association or the you know the knvb in in the netherlands that all of the structure comes from the top and there's clear cut paths, right? Yeah. Uh, and if there's two roads, they're parallel. They're definitely not perpendicular. Whereas here in the States, our roadmap looks just like you know, the tube system in London, right? It's just <laughs> chaos, uh, yeah. you know, because you have 
all these different leagues from your local soccer associations to the more elevated leagues like ECNL and the GA that's starting to develop. And then you mix in there, you've got the role that high school plays. And, you know, it's almost as if these kids are constantly on uh, a bus trip, but they have to make a switch every three blocks. Um, do you see that as a macro problem? Is it even a problem or is that just structurally who we are? Um, and what, what could we do better along the lines of, of maybe simplifying the process? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I remember what year the lawsuit was that AYSO filed with the federal government uh, when U.S. soccer gave control to um, USU soccer and then AYSO filed a lawsuit in order to be able to be another registration body. So once the federal judge gave AYSO that authority to do that, the floodgates opened. And I don't know that we have the ability to take, bring back control. So you're right, like my work with the, the FA, like they have a program in England that they wanna institute and they just decide to do it and then it just trickles down. Like that, uh, you know, here by nature of our legal system, U.S. soccer has no really intense control, if you will, over the experiences that athletes are having. So yes, in an ideal world, we would have, with a country our size, 20 levels. Kids can go in at level 20, and they're just playing like rec soccer in their in-house league, and then maybe they make it to level 19, which is still rec, and then, you know, it's 18, 17, and then they get to level 12, which is maybe little cross-town stuff that's happening. And then maybe for at the the highest level, they're doing more of this sort of international travel or uh, sorry, uh, like more regional travel or cross country travel for, for events and such. So we just don't have that ability. And so what it does is it creates a lot of confusion on your child and their pathway and what's important. And it makes the team in McLean, Virginia, have to bypass the other 12 teams that are right there and travel to Ohio to play a team in a league game. Like, come on, like you're in Northern Virginia. There's such great soccer there. Like it makes no sense, but our various league structures have forced that um, upon us. And so I don't know that there is a solution. Uh, if we could map out, if we could get into a room and say, everything's off the books, there's no, private organizations that have a stake financially and anything, how do we do this? I think we could very easily come up with something that made a lot more sense than what we have right now. And unfortunately, the kids are at the at the the end of that. Um, but what I am seeing to, to say hopeful is that we're starting to realize and leagues are starting to realize we're losing kids because we're asking too much of them. We're asking like the, the U14 boys team that really is made up of kids that play JV level high school right now and asking them to do all this tournament travel and travel six states away and fly and pay $4,000, those kids don't wanna do it. So we're gonna stop doing that actually. And that's when we're seeing this communication and trust that's established with parents who are saying, we don't wanna do this. Our kids don't wanna do this. Why are you making us do this? We're gonna quit if you make us do this. So then people are starting to pull back and get a little bit more realistic with especially those higher level teams. I mean, travel is fun and tournaments are fun and great memories are made. I'm not saying never do those, but we need to provide an experience to children that is really what they want. Cool. Well, this is, I mean, this is probably the harder question and can't be done in a, in a podcast, but what if you had with everything that you've done, 
Um, and you can see, you know, 10 years out. And I'm thinking of I'm selfishly thinking of my daughter who's 15 and is declared she would like to play for the U.S. Women's National Team, which is awesome. Okay. I would I'll do my best to, you know, stoke that fire for as long as it lasts if I can and and try to figure out, you know, I'm not even into the college conversation yet. My brain's blowing up on on what that even looks like. She's a freshman. Um, what is it if you could wave your magic wand and you know, make things a little bit better, easier for parents and, and kids and figuring out pathway in 10 years, what, what might that look like? Or can we, are we even there looking at that yet? I mean, I think I kind of go back to what I just said, if I understand the question correctly, like, like, I think we need to create an environment that children want, you know, that's conducive to what is appropriate for them. And I think we need to rethink this idea that, um, like we've created this false narrative that we have to travel so the best kids are playing against the best kids all the time like that there's parity with that and i don't know that that's always true and it would be i would be curious to sort of play that out like if we didn't force that and we kept it more local would the talent pool and the quality rise as kids get a chance to compete there against each other. Um, I don't know, like there's, I, I think that if I could wave a magic wand, I would go through the exercise that I just said, and I would just start from scratch and mm -hmm. I would, you know, award XYZ registration body level one. I would award XYZ or ABC registration body, meaning US club, US youth, um, mm -hmm. AYSO, all these different levels and national leagues and regional leagues that we have, like, okay, let's, fine, let's keep it all public, like, let's keep it all as an entity, but just say you're level one, you're level two, you're level three, and just be very clear on that and establish absolutely some promotion and relegation that could happen through that. So that, you know, kids that are developing, teams that are developing, areas that are developing in the United States have a chance to, you know, experience a higher level of play or kids can get into the right environment. That would be my magic wand. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and it's not going to happen until U.S. soccer decides and makes a play at regaining control of the youth landscape. And I don't know, you know, what their plan is around that. They just hired right. a growth manager, a growth officer. They definitely have some things in the works that I, I don't know if legally there's even the door open for them to try to regain anything there. But, you know, what we're doing is not working. Do, do you think maybe because of, um, you know, because there is a certain amount of compare and contrast between the men's and the women's program at U, uh, U.S. soccer in so much that the men's history is so much longer and we've we've literally came from the bottom, you know, destroyed our own egos as a nation. Like, oh, my God, why are we not good at this yet? And it's taken so long. We miss a World Cup a couple of years ago. Now we're back and you look at the player pool. Uh, the politics of the world, the Tim Reams of the world that are like, okay, it seems like we're clipping at a, at a higher level. You know, they're, 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 we're going in the right direction, but then the compare contrast on the women's side where they started at the top and, you know, fast forward to the recent world cup and, and bouncing out, you know, so early, you know, and really a large disappointment for all of us. Do you think us soccer, you know, when you look at the two and you compare on the women's side in particular, you know, we talked about Spain and how their system is set up and you, you mentioned the FA, well, the FA is the same. And Oh, by the way, who is the other team in the final, right? That, that's not a coincidence. Uh, do you think that maybe the, 
big, you know, uh, speed bump that occurred with the women will force U.S. soccer to maybe address this sooner than later. Because when Klinsman was here, he kind of spearheaded on the men's side, we need to get this thing under one, one roof, you know, was really mm-hmm. pushing for this is a 10-year, 15-year project. Get your clubs in line. Well, we know what happened yeah. to him. Do you do you see yeah. maybe a little bit of uh, hey, you know, there's a there's a fire in the house. The house isn't burning down, but let's let's find a way to put that out yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- the the U.S. women's um, you know loss and and you know leaving the World Cup stage earlier than all of us wanted was for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think leadership within the club, the club, la- the, the team, excuse me, within the team, the team lacked direction, lacked clarity, like this comes down to leadership. So there's a lot of issues that we're talking about here. Um, but I will say that um, there's also, you know, we do need to have the conversation um, about a couple things. One, to be very clear, the rest of the world and my air quotes here, catching up to the US women is phenomenal. Like this is exactly what we want because we know what's happening in those countries. And it will just, when in terms of the role that women play in society based on, you know, based on Jamaica having a team here and the, the, the role that they played within their culture as they go back or, you know, Zambia, where my friend Lisa Cole was their sporting director for the World Cup, like seeing the, the changes that are happening in these countries. So the rest of the world catching up, us increasing the, the base of the World Cup, meaning having more teams in the tournament, all were really positive. Um, now, the, the men, the women, I think we need to look a lot at, um, you know, what's happening in these key develop, developmental times for our women who are the high performing and have identified themselves that way, what's happening in that 13 to 18 year old age group uh, and time in their lives? And what is the quality of coaching and interaction actions that they're having? Um, you know, the MLS next and, you know, the, the, the development that's happening there, it being tied into a pro system, these more and more players on the men's side having opportunities to play internationally, um, you know, all of all of that stuff is key. I mean, I've talked to Kelly and Mark Pulisic and, you know, Christian even being young. And when Kelly when Kelly um, moved, the, the family moved to England when Christian was young because Kelly got a job teaching over there as a fellowship. And, you know, she looks back on that as a game changing moment for Christian because the game was just around him so much differently than it was even in Hershey at the time when his dad was coaching and he was around all the time, around the sport all the time but it was so different in England. So anyway, I don't know that I'm exactly answering your question because there is so many different directions that we could go with it, but, um, but it is a call to action. It's a call to curiosity. It's a call to rethink our structures, rethink our relationships, rethink the environment that we're bringing to players, rethink the expectations that we have for coaches. This is, uh, you know, the U.S. women's performance in the World Cup um, is a call to action for all of that. Absolutely. Well, Sky Eddie has been with us. We've taken plenty of Sky's time here today mm-hmm. recording, and we appreciate it so much. What I would, you know, we definitely have amongst our listeners are tons of parents who I, I know whether whichever topic we talked about are going to say, I want to know more. 
best way besides a Google search guy, but the best way <laughs> would you say if there if you if somebody had an in to you, is it looking at a particular website or what would you like them to go see? Yeah, so our education platform for parents, so if you're a parent that's listening and your instincts are telling you that you could show up a little bit differently for your child, then I would say um, go to soccerparentresourcecenter.com. That's a membership site. Um, you can get a three-day free pass and check it out. Um, you'll find our Create Framework for Parents to journey through to become a more inspirational and empowering soccer parent. You'll find a ton of education, interviews that I've done, courses that you can take. So that's a great way to find us. And our foundational site, our public-facing site, if you will, is soccerparenting.com. And would that be a great place also for coaches? If you're a coach listening going, wow, I'd really like to, a lot of coaches are parents too, but you know, mm -hmm. I would love to have a better environment with my parents as well. First, is that a great place for them to go or anything different for coaches? Yeah, so for coaches, you should take our course that we just launched. It's at um, parentengagementforcoaches.com. Uh, if you want to be a coach that is, um, you know, able to establish these trust-filled relationships, if you know that uh, there's some opportunities to have the uh, environment that you're uh, developing players in be a little bit better, parentengagementforcoaches.com. I'll put a coupon code Sunday for that. Um, so if you enter Sunday at checkout, you can get 10% off the course. And um, I really encourage coaches to check it out. It's a course I'm really, really proud of. It's 60 minutes, a lot of downloads and um, different takeaways and worksheets and reflections for coaches to do about, um, you know, establishing, you know, great relationships. Basically, the course could be called establishing a community on your a sense of community on your team, but parentengagementforcoaches.com. Fantastic. Well, we've been with Sky Eddy, who's player, parent, uh, facilitator, and in my opinion, game changer for the beautiful game and, and all of our relationships that are inside that game. Thank you so much for your time with me and JB today. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Thanks so much. I know I had a lot of fun too. I appreciate it. Y'all take care. Well, best of luck. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank Thanks. you.